0: Book five Chapter nine of the Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Book five. The Discovery Chapter nine Sights and Sounds Draw the Wanderers Together Having seen Eustace's signal from the hill at eight o'clock wild eve immediately prepared to assist her in her flight and as he hoped accompany her he was somewhat perturbed and his manner of informing thomason that he was going on a journey was in itself sufficient to rouse her suspicions when she had gone to bed he collected the few articles he would require and went upstairs to the money-chest whence he took a tolerably bountiful sum in notes which had been advanced to him on the property he was so soon to have in possession to defray expenses incidental to the removal. He then went to the stable and coach-house to assure himself that the horse, gig, and harness were in a fit condition for a long drive. Nearly half an hour was spent thus, and on returning to the house Wildeve had no thought of Thomason being anywhere but in bed. He had told the stable lad not to stay up, leading the boy to understand that his departure would be at three or four in the morning. For this, though an exceptional hour, was less strange than midnight, the time actually agreed on, the packet from Budmouth sailing between one and two. At last all was quiet, and he had nothing to do but wait. By no effort could he shake off the oppression of spirits which he had experienced ever since his last meeting with Eustacia, but he hoped there was that in his situation which money could cure he had persuaded himself that to act not ungenerously towards his gentle wife by settling on her the half of his property and with chivalrous devotion towards another and greater woman by sharing her fate was possible and though he meant to adhere to eustacia's instructions to the letter to deposit her where she wished and to leave her should that be her will the spell that she had cast over him intensified and his heart was beating fast in the anticipated futility of such commands in the face of a mutual wish that they should throw in their lot together he would not allow himself to dwell long upon these conjectures maxims and hopes and at twenty minutes to twelve he again went softly to the stable harnessed the horse and lit the lamps whence taking the horse by the head he led him with the covered car out of the yard to a spot by a roadside some quarter of a mile below the inn Here Wild Eve waited, slightly sheltered from the driving rain by a high bank that had been cast up at this place. Along the surface of the road, where lit by the lamps the loosened gravel and small stones scudded and clicked together before the wind, which leaving them in heaps, and boomed across the bushes into darkness. Only one sound rose above this din of weather, and that was the roaring of a ten-hatch weir to the southward, from a river in the meads which formed the boundary of the heath in this direction. He lingered on in perfect stillness, till he began to fancy that the midnight hour must have struck. A very strong doubt had arisen in his mind if Eustacia would venture down the hill in such weather, yet knowing her nature he felt that she might. "'Poor thing, 'tis her ill-luck,' he murmured. At length he turned to the lamp and looked at his watch to his surprise it was nearly a quarter past midnight he now wished that he had driven up the circuitous road to mistover a plan not adopted because of the enormous length of the route in proportion to that of the pedestrian's path down the open hillside and the consequent increase of labor for the horse at this moment a footstep approached but the light of the lamps being in a different direction the corner was not visible the step paused then came on again "'Eustacia,' said Wildeve. The person came forward, and the light fell upon the form of Klim, glistening with wet, whom Wildeve immediately recognized. But Wildeve, who stood behind the lamp, was not at once recognized by Yobright. He stopped, as if in doubt whether this waiting vehicle could have anything to do with the flight of his wife or not. The sight of Yobright at once banished Wildeve's sober feelings who saw him again as the deadly rival from whom Eustacia was to be kept at all hazards. Hence Wildeve did not speak, in the hope that Clem would pass by without particular inquiry. While they both hung thus in hesitation, a dull sound became audible above the storm and wind. Its origin was unmistakable. It was the fall of a body into the stream in the adjoining mead, apparently of a point near the weir. Both started. "'Good God! Can it be she?' said Klim. "'Why should it be she?' said Wild Eve, in his alarm, forgetting that he had hitherto screened himself. "'Ah! That's you, you traitor, is it?' cried Yobright. "'Why
1: should it be she? Because last week she would have put an end to her life if she had been able. She ought to have been watched. Take one of the lamps and come
0: with me.' Yobright seized the one on his side and hastened on. Wild Eve did not wait to unfasten the other, but followed at once along the meadow track to their weir, a little in the rear of Clym. Shadwater Weir had at its foot a large circular pool, fifty feet in diameter, in which the water flowed through ten huge hatches, raised and lowered by a winch and cogs in the ordinary manner. The sides of the pool were of masonry, to prevent the water from washing away the bank but the force of the stream in winter was sometimes such as to undermine the retaining wall and precipitate it into the hole. Clem reached the hatches, the framework of which was shaken to its foundations by the velocity of the current. Nothing but the froth of the waves could be discerned into the pool below. He got upon the plank bridge over the race, and holding to the rail, that the wind might not blow him off, crossed to the other side of the river. There he leant over the wall and lowered the lamp only to behold the vortex formed at the curl of the returning current. Wildeve, meanwhile, had arrived on the former side, and the light from Yobright's lamp shed a flecked and agitated radiance across the weir pool, revealing to the ex-engineer the tumbling courses of the currents from the hatches above. Across this gashed and puckered mirror a dark body was slowly borne by one of the backward currents. "'Oh, my darling!' exclaimed Wildeve in an agonized voice, and, without showing sufficient presence of mind even to throw off his greatcoat, he leaped into the boiling cauldron. Yalbright could now also discern the floating body, though but indistinctly, and, imagining from Wildeve's plunge that there was life to be saved, he was about to leap after. Bethinking himself of a wiser plan, he placed the lamp against a post to make it stand upright and running round to the lower part of the pool, where there was no wall, he sprang in and boldly waded upwards towards the deeper portion. Here he was taken off his legs, and in swimming was carried round into the center of the basin, where he perceived Wildive struggling. While these hasty actions were in progress here, Venn and Thomason had been toiling through the lower corner of the heath in the direction of the light. They had not been near enough to the river to hear the plunge but they saw the removal of the carriage-lamp and watched its motion into the mead. As soon as they reached the car and horse, Ven guessed that something new was amiss, and hastened to follow in the course of the moving light. Ven walked faster than Thomason, and came to the weir alone. The lamp placed against the post by Klim still shone across the water, and the riddle-man observed something floating motionless. Being encumbered with the infant, He ran back to meet Thomason. "'Take the baby, please, Mrs. Wildeve,' he said hastily. "'Run home with
2: her, call the stable-lad, and make him send down to me any men who may be living
0: near—somebody has fallen into the weir.'" Thomason took the child and ran. When she came to the covered car, the horse, though fresh from the stable, was standing perfectly still, as if conscious of misfortune. She saw for the first time whose it was she nearly fainted, and would have been unable to proceed another step, but that the necessity of preserving the little girl from harm nerved her to an amazing self-control. In this agony of suspense she entered the house, put the baby in a place of safety, woke the lad and the female domestic, and ran out to give the alarm at the nearest cottage. Diggory, having returned to the brink of the pool, observed that the small upper hatches or floats were withdrawn. He found one of these lying upon the grass, and taking it under one arm, and with his lantern in his hand, entered at the bottom of the pool, as Klim had done. As soon as he began to be in deep water, he flung himself across the hatch. Thus supported, he was able to keep afloat as long as he chose, holding the lantern aloft with his disengaged hand. Propelled by his feet, he steered round and round the pool, ascending each time by one of the back streams, and descending in the middle of the current. At first he could see nothing. Then, amidst the glistening of the whirlpools and the white clots of foam, he distinguished a woman's bonnet floating alone. His search was now under the left wall, when something came to the surface almost close beside him. It was not, as he expected, a woman, but a man. The riddle man put the ring of the lantern between his teeth, seized the floating man by the collar, and, holding on to the hatch with his remaining arm, struck out into the strongest race by which the unconscious man, the hatch, and himself were carried down the stream as soon as Venn found his feet dragging over the pebbles of the shallower part below. He secured his footing and waded towards the bank, there where the water stood at about the height of his waist he flung away the hatch and attempted to drag forth the man. This was a matter of great difficulty, and he found as the reason that the legs of the unfortunate stranger were tightly embraced by the arms of another man, who had hitherto been entirely beneath the surface. At this moment his heart bounded to hear footsteps running towards him, and two men, roused by Thomason, appeared at the brink above. They ran to where Venn was and helped him in lifting out the apparently drowned persons, separating them, and laying them out upon the grass. Ven turned the light upon their faces. The one who had been uppermost was Yeobright; he who had been completely submerged was Wild Eve. "'Now we must search the hole again,' said Venn. "'A woman is in there somewhere. Get a pole.' One of the men went to the footbridge and tore off the handrail. The bettleman man and the two others then entered the water together from below as before, and with their united force probed the pool forwards to where it sloped down to its central depth. Venn was not mistaken in supposing that any person who had sunk for the last time would be washed down to this point, for when they had examined to about half-way across, something impeded their thrust. Uh, "'Pull it forward,' said Venn and they raked it in with the pole till it was close to their feet. Then vanished under the stream, and came up with an armful of wet drapery enclosing a woman's cold form, which was all that remained of the desperate Eustacia. When they reached the bank there stood Thomason in a stress of grief bending over the two unconscious ones who already lay there. The horse and cart were brought to the nearest point in the road. And it was the work of a few minutes only to place the three in the vehicle. Van led on to the horse, supporting Thomason upon his arm, and the two men followed till they reached the inn. The woman who had been shaken out of her sleep by Thomason had hastily dressed herself and lighted a fire. The other servant being left to snore on in peace at the back of the house. The insensible forms of Eustacia, Clym, and Wildie were then brought in and laid on the carpet, with their feet to the fire. When such restorative processes as could be thought of were adopted at once, the stableman being in the meantime sent for a doctor. But there seemed to be not a whiff of life in either of the bodies. Then Thomason, whose stupor of grief had been thrust off a while by frantic action, applied a bottle of hartshorn to Clem's nostrils, having tried it in vain upon the other two. He sighed.
2: Klim's alive!
0: she exclaimed. He soon breathed distinctly and again and again did she attempt to revive her husband by the same means but wildeve gave no sign there was too much reason to think that he and eustacia both were forever beyond the reach of stimulating perfumes their exertions did not relax till the doctor arrived when one by one the senseless three were taken upstairs and put into warm beds Ben soon felt himself relieved from further attendance, and went to the door, scarcely able yet to realize the strange catastrophe that had befallen the family in which he took so great an interest. Thomas and Shirley would be broken down by the sudden and overwhelming nature of this event. No firm and sensible Mrs. Yeobright lived now to support the gentle girl through the ordeal, and whatever an unimpassioned spectator might think of her loss of such a husband as Wildeve, There could be no doubt that for the moment she was distracted and horrified by the blow. As for himself, not being privileged to go to her and comfort her, he saw no reason for waiting longer in a house where he remained only as a stranger. He returned across the heath to his van. His fire was not yet out, and everything remained as he had left it. Van now bethought himself of his clothes, which were saturated with water to the weight of lead. He changed them, spread them before the fire, and lay down to sleep. But it was more than he could do to rest here while excited by a vivid imagination of the turmoil they were in at the house he had quitted, and blaming himself for coming away, he dressed in another suit, locked up the door, and again hastened across to the inn. Rain was still falling heavily when he entered the kitchen. A bright fire was shining from the hearth, and two women were bustling about, one of whom was Ollie Dowden. "'Well, how is it going on now?' said Van in a whisper.
1: "'Mr. Yulbright is better, but Mrs. Yulbright and Mr. Wildeave are dead and cold. The doctor says they were quite gone before we were out of the water.'
2: "'Ah, I thought as much when I hauled him up. And Mrs. Wildeave?'
1: "'She is as well as can be expected.' The doctor had to put her between blankets, for she was almost as wet as they had been in the river. Poor young thing. You don't seem very dry, Riddleman.
2: Oh, tis not much. I have changed my things. This is only a little dampness I've got, coming through the rain again.
1: Stand by the fire. Mrs. says, you be to have whatever you want. And she was sorry when she was told you had gone away
0: van drew near to the fireplace and looked into the flames in an absent mood the steam came from his leggings and ascended the chimney with the smoke while he thought of those who were upstairs two were corpses one had barely escaped the jaws of death another was sick and a widow the last occasion on which he had lingered by that fireplace was when the raffle was in progress when wildeve was alive and well thomason active and smiling in the next room Yobright and Eustacia just made husband and wife, and Mrs. Yobright living at Bloom's End. It had seemed at that time that the then position of affairs was good for at least twenty years to come. Yet of all the circle he himself was the only one whose situation had not materially changed. While he ruminated a footstep descended the stairs. It was the nurse who brought in her hand a rolled mass of wet paper. The woman was so engrossed with her occupation that she hardly saw Venn. She took from a cupboard some pieces of twine, which she strained across the fireplace, tying the end of each piece to the fire-dog, previously pulled forward for the purpose, and unrolling the wet papers, she began pinning them one by one to the strings, in a manner of clothes on a line. "'What be they?' said Venn.
1: "'Poor master's bank-notes,'
0: she
2: answered.
1: "'They were found in his pocket when they undressed him.'
2: then he was not coming back again for some time said
0: Ben.
1: that we shall never know
0: said she Ben was loath to depart for all on earth that interested him lay under this roof as nobody in the house had any more sleep that night except the two who slept for ever there was no reason why he should not remain so he retired into the niche of the fireplace where he had used to sit and there he continued, watching the steam from the double row of banknotes as they waved backwards and forwards in the draught of the chimney, till their flaccidity was changed to dry crispness throughout. Then the woman came and unpinned them, and, folding them together, carried the handful upstairs. Presently the doctor appeared from above with the look of a man who could do no more, and, pulling on his gloves, went out of the house the trotting of his horse soon dying away upon the road at four o'clock there was a gentle knock at the door it was from Charlie, who had been sent by captain Vye to inquire if anything had been heard of eustacia the girl who admitted him looked in his face as if she did not know what answer to return and showed him in to where ven was seated saying to the riddleman
2: will you tell him please
0: ven told charlie's only utterance was a feeble indistinct sound he stood quite still then he burst out spasmodically
1: shall i see her once more
0: i dare say you may see her said diggory gravely
2: but hadn't you better run and tell captain Vye?"
1: yes yes only i do hope i shall see her just once again
0: you shall said a low voice behind and starting round they beheld by the dim light a thin pallid almost spectral form wrapped in a blanket and looking like lazarus come from the tomb it was yo neither van nor charley spoke and klim continued
1: you shall see her there will be enough time to tell the captain when it gets daylight you would like to see her too would you not diggory she looks very beautiful now
0: van assented by rising to his feet and with Charlie he followed Clem to the foot of the staircase, where he took off his boots. Charlie did the same. They followed Yobright upstairs to the landing, where there was a candle burning, which Yobright took in his hand and with it led the way into an adjoining room. Here he went to the bedside and folded back the sheet. They stood silently, looking upon Eustacia, who, as she lay there still in death, eclipsed all her living phases. Pallor did not include all the quality of her complexion, which seemed more than whiteness. It was almost light. The expression of her finely carved mouth was pleasant, as if a sense of dignity had just compelled her to leave off speaking. Eternal rigidity had seized upon it in a momentary transition between fervor and resignation her black hair was looser now than either of them had ever seen it before, and surrounded her brow like a forest. The stateliness of look which had been almost too marked for a dweller in a country domicile had at last found an artistically happy background. Nobody spoke, till at length Clem covered her and turned aside.
1: "'Now, come here,'
0: he said. They went to a recess in the same room and there on a smaller bed lay another figure, Mildiv. Less repose was visible in his face than in Eustace's, but the same luminous youthfulness overspread it, and the least sympathetic observer would have felt at sight of him now that he was born for a higher destiny than this. The only sign upon him of his recent struggle for life was in his fingertips, and which were worn and sacrificed in his dying endeavours to obtain a hold on the face of the weir wall. Yulbright's manner had been so quiet, he had uttered so few syllables since his reappearance, that Van imagined him resigned. It was only when they had left the room and stood upon the landing that the true state of his mind was apparent. Here he said, with a wild smile, inclining his head towards the chamber in which Eustacia lay,
1: She is the second woman I have killed this year. I was a great cause of my mother's death, and I am the chief cause of hers. How? said Ven. I spoke cruel words to her, and she left my house. I did not invite her back till it was too late. It is I who ought to have drowned myself. It would have been a charity to the living had the river overwhelmed me and borne her up. But I cannot die.
2: Those who ought to have lived lie dead,
1: and here am I,
2: alive but you can't charge yourself with crimes in that way said ven you may as well say that the parents be the cause of a murder by the child for without the parents the child would never have been begot
1: yes ven that is very true but you don't know all the circumstances if it had pleased god to put an end to me it would have been a good thing for all but i am getting used to the horror of my existence They say that a time comes when men laugh at misery through long acquaintance with it. Surely that time will soon come to me.
2: Your aim has always been good, said Ben. Why should you say such desperate things?
1: No, they are not desperate. They are only hopeless. And my great regret is that for what I have done, no man or law can punish
0: me. End of Book Five, Chapter Nine End of— Book five.